Say, please take your seats. I'm glad I didn't do that. All right, 2 Peter. We're in 2 Peter. We're in the home stretch of 2 Peter. We're in chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. And it reads, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were in the beginning of all creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist and are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly. But do not overlook this, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. May God add a blessing to His Word. You may be seated. Initially, when I first started looking at uh, these scriptures, I was going to go all the way through uh, to the end of chapter 3 and then as I was developing that, I was like, wow, that's like an hour and a half sermon. That's not going to work. Um, so, uh, uh, but, you know, last week, and we're, we're, we're into that home stretch. Now, remember, Peter is writing his second letter to the churches, right, in response to what he is seeing happening in the churches or what is a threat to the churches, and that is false teachers. And now, this morning, we're going to talk about scoffers as well. Now, Peter is, as we know, a pastor. He has a heart of a pastor. And his care for the church is evident in, in how he um, communicates to the church. Okay? And, but we also know that his time is short. And his care is great. And he wants to make sure that the church that bears his Savior's name is one that is going to be protected and growing and continuing and being effectual. And so last week, Peter gave a very strong, well, actually, I gave a very strong message from Peter on those who falsely teach and those who are unstable and fall for their false teaching, right? We always need to be on guard. We always need to be aware. We need to continue to grow in the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ so that we can be mature enough to not be swayed by every whim of doctrine. Peter was direct in what he was saying about false teachers. Very harsh statements, very true statements, very... Serious statements, descriptive and authoritative and firm. And one can tell that Peter was not very happy about what was threatening the church. You could see, you could see the sense of urgency in his voice or in his writings and his immediacy and in conviction, but also his love because that's why he's writing the letters. It's because he loves the church. And at the heart, as I said, Peter is a pastor, and you can hear this in his words. And he wants to protect the church from the threats that they face. 
Having addressed the false teachers, Peter now takes aim at those who scoff. Now, it's interesting that Peter shifts from chapter 2 and identifying them as false teachers to now chapter 3 where he's calling them scoffers. And although similar, there is a difference between a false teacher and a scoffer. Whereas a false teacher is a threat to doctrine because they come in, they twist Scripture, they make it use it for their own purposes and their own desires. 95% of what they're saying is that 5% you got to be watching out for. Because that's what they twist. They make it palatable, right? They make it believable. And so that's what a false teacher is. A scoffer is different. A scoffer attacks faith. A scoffer creates doubt. A scoffer plants those seeds of doubt in order to justify their position. And I, I know that you have all have met your fair share of scoffers. And you might have been, like me at one time, a scoffer himself. And we know what our conviction was when we were scoffing, and we also know what the conviction are of those that scoff. They don't believe that. They're hard-pressed to understand why you do. Why would you believe such myths, as Peter says, we don't believe in? But that's how they see it. Now, these scoffers that Peter is talking about are questioning the very return of Christ. And within our text this morning, Peter identifies their position as it relates to that, and provides a rebuttal that reveals their ignorance towards the Word of God. So let's examine our text this morning and see the position that the scoffers take in Peter's response. But also at the end, Peter gives us all a great encouragement. Verses 1 through 3, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring you up. Sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the Old Testament, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through His apostles, New Testament for us, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They're carrying on their false teaching, and now they're scoffing those who believe in sound doctrine that is counter to theirs. And we see right away that Peter is admonishing the church to be stirred up, to be stirred up. Peter's aim is clear. He does not want the church to become comfortable in their faith, but to be continuously stirred up, continuously progressing, continuously growing in the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the Lord. Now, if you recall, the word stirred up means to wake out of sleep, arouse in general, to stir up. You know, Peter knows by his own personal experience that we as believers need to be continuously stirred in order to be vibrant in our faith. Peter knew we all have the propensity to slumber in our faith, meaning to coast or to plateau. We put our faith on cruise control, right? You ever drive your car on cruise control and then never look at the gauges again because you're always busy looking at the scenery, right, of the world going by? That's how we do sometimes in our faith. We put it on cruise control. We don't really pay attention to the gauges of our faith, and we're just passing by through the world, not realizing that we need to be stirred up. We need to be vital in our faith. You know, I remember my mom, I shared this, I shared this story on Wednesday night. I remember my mom teaching me how to make tomato soup, right? And she always used milk with a condensed can of tomato soup, and she said you have to continuously be stirring it. 
So I would continuously stir it. Well, then it was time to make the grilled cheese sandwiches. So I stopped stirring it. I took it off the burner and I put it over and I stopped. One, one of these times I stopped and I put it over and I started making the grilled cheese sandwiches. And if anybody ever allowed a tomato soup to kind of sit, what develops on the top? That film, right? Well, it looks like tomato soup, right? Until you stir it. And they find this crusty little film on top that, I don't know, I, I had to taste it. it mm, that's gross. It's not part of the soup. And so my mom would say, well, you, did, you, did, you gotta keep stirring it. You gotta keep stirring it so it won't burn on the bottom and it won't develop the crust on the top. That's what our faith is like. We need to be stirred up continuously so we don't settle. So we don't get this crusty firm on the top, right? Because it looks like faith, but it's not really faith. It's, it's deceptive. And this is why Peter is stirring up the churches. Faith because he fears that they have a film developing on top of their faith that allows these false teachers to come in and sway them. And so we need to be stirred up. Now, what is the position that these scoffers hold? If you recall last week, I stated they twisted the word of Paul. In fact, Peter even alludes to that. He said they twist because sometimes Paul's writings are a little difficult to understand, and as what they take advantage of them, and then they twist those scriptures. And one of the scriptures that they believed that they twisted was in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, that's where they stop. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. They took this scripture to mean that the resurrection has already occurred in the Spirit. Therefore, the body is of no consequence or what you do with it because spiritually you are raised with Christ. Therefore, giving credence and justification for their false teachings to live a life of their own desires. And we covered those last week, whether it be money or whether it be physical desires that they would have. Now, to give a little bit of evidence to this, we see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, where we read where Hymenaeus and Philetus were actually spreading false teaching that the resurrection had already happened. And so false teachers believed that since they were resurrected in the Spirit, again, the physical body has no consequence. And so this was happening in the early church. And we sit back and we go, how does that happen? And in order to give credence to what they were teaching, this is what they said. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It hasn't happened yet. Now understand the time of Peter's writing. About 63 AD, 30-some years after Christ's death. They're saying, hey, and those fathers that fall asleep, they, some believe that those are the fathers of the early church that have fallen asleep since the time of Christ's resurrection. Some people believe it's fathers back in the day, the, the early uh, fathers of, uh, of faith. Irregardless of which one it is, if it is the latter, the 30 years, Christ hasn't returned. Doesn't look like He's coming. And this is the position of the false teachers. Hasn't came. Why should we expect it? It's a pretty rational argument. But it's one void of understanding of Scripture. In fact, it shows the ignorance of Scripture. Now, 
That was the false teaching that was going on at the time of Peter. But we need to address a false teaching that's going on today as well so that we understand the context and application of what Peter is saying. There is a prevalent teaching today that says that due to the natural laws of God that He imposed upon this earth, He cannot intervene in them. He cannot run contrary to them. He cannot alter the change of them. Again, when man uses his own understanding and defers totally to science, they find themselves in error. Because in this view, how then was there the flood that has strong archaeological evidence of it occurring? Not only that, ancient peoples who wrote on caves through oral tradition speak, all of them speak, not just the Israelite history, but other histories of man speak of this flood. Almost all ancient people groups have the story of the flood. So how can this happen if God operates outside of the laws of His nature? How then was the sea parted? How then would its manna fallen from heaven? Or the plagues of Egypt? With, once again, archaeological discoveries are showing those plagues occurred. Now what is concerning here is the actual contemporary theologians who believe this and thus denounce the second coming of Christ. Because when Christ comes, this world will be destroyed and a new one will be created. And they're like, no, that doesn't compete with the natural laws of science. Therefore, it can't be true. And there are theologians in their commentaries who say that. And it shows the ignorance of them as it relates to the Word of God. In fact, if they would have just read just a little bit more in Colossians, in verse 4, we see when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. That speaks of the resurrection. How about Jesus' own words? Matthew 24, 44, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's coming. And so Peter then takes their position and says, okay, I understand your position. You believe that since the fathers, everything is continuing since creation, you think because he hasn't come now, he's never going to come? All right, let's examine that under the weight of Scripture. And so he does in verse 4. For they deliberately overlooked, this is Peter, they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, these world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The first error or the first counter-argument that Peter provides here in Scripture to the scoffers who believe that because he hasn't come, he's not going to come, is they fail to recognize what the Word of God says about Jesus' second coming and the promises of His return. You know... Sometimes you've got to get the numbers to really solidify how prevalent the second coming of Christ is mentioned in the Word of God. According to scholars, 1,845 biblical references are present for the second coming of Jesus Christ. 1,845. In fact, the Bible references the second coming 8 to 1 over His initial coming. Did you know that? 8 to 1, they speak of His second coming over 
His first coming. Within the Old Testament, 17 books mention Christ's second coming. 17. How about the New Testament? That should be pretty prevalent, right? 23 out of 27. With Revelation holding the most. So when Peter is stirring up the believers as it relates to the second coming of Christ, it's a major theme in God's Word. And yet these scoffers are ignorant of it. And they forget the power of God's Word, and they forget the certainty of God's Word as well. For it was by the Word of God that everything was created, as Peter just said. I'm a little slow on my slides today. In Genesis 1-3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1-6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And so it was. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. Genesis 1-9. Are you seeing a pattern here? It was God's Word. His spoken Word that created the heavens and the earth. It was by the Word of God that all the beasts were created. It was by the Word of God that man was created in the image and likeness of Him. It was by the Word that the earth was flooded and God's first judgment upon the earth destroying all but seven. It was by the Word of God that fire and brimstone fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It was by the Word of God His people were established by way of Abraham. It was by the Word of God that His kingdom was established. It was by the Word of God that Jesus came as the Lamb of God. It was by the Word that He was sinless, that He ministered, He suffered and died, was buried, was resurrected, and ascended. It was by the Word of God that He's coming again. Because it's by His Word. And God keeps His Word. And so there's a lot of references that speak to God's second, or Jesus' second coming in God's Word. And yet they boast, these scoffers. In fact, it says they deliberately, meaning purposely overlooking the evidence of the prophets. You ever met somebody like that? You show them hard facts, and they're like, mm-mm, not going to believe you. That's how prideful these scoffers are. In fact, Jesus said, you are wrong because you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. That's being ignorant on two levels. And so Peter first gives the evidence of God's Word in showing the error of the scoffers, but he doesn't stop there. He also points out their error with time. In verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Now, Peter is not providing us a math problem for us to equate out. There are people that have actually used this scripture to try to figure out when Christ will return through some kind of mathematical equation. And Peter's not giving us a formula by which we are to gauge when he will return. What Peter is showing us is that God's view of time is not our view of time. I like how one commentator says it. 
that, that distinctions of long and short time are nothing in the sight of God. Delay is purely a human conception. Do you know how many years it was between the creation of Adam and the flood? 1656. So from chapter 1 of Genesis to chapter 6, which is just a few pages, maybe two in your Bible, 1656 years. How many years between the flood and Christ's birth? They estimate that to be 2,344. How many between Christ's death and resurrection? And today, they estimate 1,989 years. A great amount of time has passed. And if we don't understand God's time, we will err in understanding this text. Why is that? Because we tend to view Scripture through our own understanding and experiences. It's called presupposition. For example, everything we do is determined by time. We work 40 hours a week. We receive three weeks of vacation. There's only 24 hours in a day. We are given timelines with our work and our projects that need to be done by this time and this date. When I do my time card and my job, I have to identify everything that I've done, breaking down interviews, travel, doing records and so on and so forth, prepping for interviews. And so because we're governed by time, we associate things by time. And what Peter is pointing out is that rational argument posed by scoffers is using a purely human evaluation of time. God is always and will always exist, and He operates in eternity, such as time. Remember, God created time within His creation. He's not bound by it. We are. And so to use an element of time created by God as a measure towards His actions or failure therein reveals our ignorance and our Futile attempts to put God in a box as it relates to our time. And that is the error of the scoffers as it relates to time in the Lord's return. But here's what Peter is really saying in this text. Christ's return is not measured by time, but by His promises. By His promises. And that's where he goes to verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now here in verse 9, we see Peter's final argument against the scoffers as it relates to their position, and that is the promises of God. Just because the Lord is long in coming, we are not to assume He's not. Obviously, we get this because when people are long in fulfilling what they promise to do and become skeptical when they don't fulfill that promise or what they said they were going to do, but we are never to do that with the promises of God. Our Father is bound by His character to fulfill His promises. Look at Numbers 23, 19. I guess I didn't do a slide for that. But... Numbers 23, 19, hear what he says. God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. 
Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will not fulfill it? What God says he's going to do, that's what that verse is saying. What God said he's going to do, he's going to do. And time is not a barrier. It's not a hindrance. It's not a restriction. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham? They thought it was going to happen right away. And Sarah said, well, it's not going to happen, so why don't you go into my maidservant? We all know what happened after that. Abraham did finally get that son. And so we are never to evaluate God's promises by virtue of time. We just accept them as yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In Titus 2, 1, 2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He cannot lie. He cannot break His word. That gives us great faith in His promises. And you guys have experienced many of His promises in your life. And that deepens your faith. And so all throughout the Old Testament New Testament, God promises the return of Christ, as we've covered in all of those references and we've covered in previous weeks. God promises are assurances of what He will do regardless of time. There's not a time that I believe God has ever not fulfilled His promise. If there is, please let me know. But I don't think anybody's going to approach me and tell me. Unless you're a scoffer. And these scoffers have either chosen not to believe them, or they're ignorant of them. Let us not be either of those. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. And so in response to these scoffers, Peter takes a three-pronged approach in refuting their position by the very power of God's Word, His timing, and His promises. For Peter's argument then is if you believe in a portion of God's Word, you must believe in its entirety. You cannot pick out a verse, use it for your purposes, and not receive the rest of it. Because it's a complete book. It's not to be parsed and parceled. Now having now addressed the error by which they operate and Peter's response to it, Peter now gives us a great encouragement for the day in which we live. But he is patient, as the Scripture in 9 says, towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now this verse is of great encouragement to me, the patience of God. I stand before you as a saved man because of the patience of God. And although we wait for the righteous and anxiously righteous, return of our Lord, and I yearn for His return, I have to admit it's of selfish desire because of the evil that we see in the world, the sin in my own life. I, Lord, please come. I remember Ron Overly. <laughs> Ron Overly, he always like, Lord, please come now. And, and we all do that, right? Come, Lord Jesus, right? Rescue us from this land. But you know something? 
If Jesus would have came between 1967 and 1984, I wouldn't be with you. Many of you wouldn't be here either. And so we're glad that the Lord is patient, not wishing for anyone to perish. Now, some have used this verse to justify universalism, in which we're all saved. We've been talking about that Sunday school and the different messages. And again, by way of comparative analysis of Scripture, we know this not to be true. For if it was true, we would, there would be no need for the Great Commission. We wouldn't hear verses like we heard this morning in our teachings in Sunday school class, away from me, for I did not know you. If universalism exists, everyone's saved. But there's another way people look at it, and it's just as much an error. They read this and they say, God is holding out. He's hopeful that His creation will come to their collective spiritual senses and finally recognize Him for who He is and repent. Almost as if He winds up the clock and goes, okay, let's just hope for the best. Oh, good, they did. Oh. That's not the how I understand the Scripture either. And I don't think either of these are in play because when we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, what do we hear? We hear this, to those who are elect. And then the verse 3, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination teaches that God, it is God who saves. And it is by His perfect will. It is by His sovereignty that He calls those who are elect to be saved. The better way to understand this verse in light of 1 Peter chapter 1 is that God is holding time in order to bring in those whom His elect, who are His elect in Christ. In fact, Paul alluded to this in Romans 11.25 where it says, until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. And so God is patient and waiting for all of His elect to be brought into the fold. So this is the reason that time marches on as it does since creation. And the fathers who have fallen asleep, which is to say, have passed on. It is His patience. And the reason why He's patient is because of His love. It was by His love that He sent His Son, and it will be by His love that He will send Him again. Therefore, Let's take solace in His promises and His patience and let these scriptures be an encouragement to us that Christ is coming again, no matter the scoffers that say He's not. It doesn't matter how much time has gone by. It doesn't matter how many events have taken place. He's coming because He promised us that He would. And we need to be ready. Brothers and sisters, scoffers have come. They are here. And they will be with us until the time of Christ's return. Let us not listen to their crafty arguments and the twisting of Scripture. Let the Word of God be your guide and your assurance as to the things of Christ and His return be remembered, and follow the lead of the Holy Spirit who will always lead you 
improper thought, proper understanding, and righteousness. For Jesus himself said, you were finally wondering when I was going to get to that final slide because I flipped to it like three times. Well, here it is. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Yes, we await for that day, and we anxiously await for that day. But when I look at my loved ones, I look at my family, I look at the people we prayed for this morning, I look at my friends, and they're not saved. Thank you for your patience, Lord. Yeah, I want to be home. I want to be with you, Lord. But if it means a few more years to bring them into the fold, praise the Lord. Because we'll be patient and we'll wait. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message this morning, Father. And Father, as you're patient, I pray we're patient. But that, Father, in this time that you've given us, that we would be active that we would be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to bring those into the fold that you've elected. So, Father, I thank you for the encouragement of this word. And, Father, I pray that as we heard what scoffers do and the positions that they hold, that, Father, that they can be refuted by your holy word, your perfect word. But we need nothing else to rely on. And, Father, we're thankful that your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That you, your character can't go against your word. Therefore, Father, we know that you're coming again. And so, Father, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, we do so because we want to continue to remember as Paul encourages us to. So, Lord, stir our hearts. Stir our hearts in your word. Stir our hearts in what you've called us to do. Let us never be lax. Let us never be comfortable. Let us never plateau, but always progressing always growing, always maturing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Like I said, um, as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's table, if I could have the communion stewards come forward.